This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. It's Josh Safe, and I'm here with Dan again. We're very excited to present another key installment of our Cardio Nerds ACHD series. In this episode, we will be discussing anomalous pulmonary venous return. Joining us today will be Dr. Tripti Gupta from Oshner Medical Center and Dr. Ian Harris from the University of California at San Francisco. Allow me the honor of introducing Tripti. Tripti received her undergraduate degree from the University of Southern California before moving down under to the University of Queensland for her medical education. She returned stateside to the Oshner Health System in New Orleans for residency and cardiology fellowship and, amazingly, has just matched to Vanderbilt for her advanced training in adult congenital heart disease. Welcome to the show, Tripti. Thanks, Josh, and thank you, Cardio Nerds, for having me on the show. I was introduced to ACHD when I was an eager third-year medical student looking for something exciting to dedicate my life to. I met Dr. Sunita Shah, who not only introduced me to ACHD, but also became my mentor. In her clinic, I saw patients with fascinating anatomies, young tets my age struggling with heart failure. Then I went to Camp Bancor. This was an annual summer camp where adults and kids with congenital heart disease interacted with each other for a week, and we were giving them an informational session on reproduction and congenital heart disease. I was responsible for the contraception part of the talk, and when we finished, we met a newly engaged woman in her late 20s with complex congenital heart disease who was there with your fiancé and had been told her whole life that she would never be able to have kids. When Dr. Shah reassured her that she would be able to, albeit with close monitoring, there were tears in her eyes. When a couple realizes that they'll be able to have a family, it's a profound moment, not only for them, but for everyone else in the room. I realized then that there were so many opportunities for advancement in the field of ACHD, for research, for educating the general cardiologist and the patient themselves, that this was the calling I was looking for. I've never looked back since. I'm super thrilled to step into this world. Today, I consider it an honor to be sharing this episode with Dr. Ian Harris, who is the director of the ACHD program at UCSF. He was born in Palo Alto and grew up in Southern California and Hawaii. He earned his bachelor's degree in French literature from UC Berkeley and then taught high school chemistry before realizing his passion for medicine and getting his medical degree from UCSF. He completed his internal medicine residency and research fellowship at Washington University School of Medicine and Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. He came to UCSF for his cardiology fellowship and congenital fellowship. Dr. Harris, I'd love to hear about your journey and how you got interested in ACHD. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, well, let's see. I was kind of fascinated by congenital heart disease when I was a medical student. I guess I was one of those kids in medical school who, you know, liked to 
you know, read up on all of the esoteric stuff to kind of impress my classmates or something. But I just found that some of the details of congenital anatomy and physiology and clinical exam associated with it kind of fascinating. And I wasn't sure I wanted to be a pediatric cardiologist. I was more drawn to internal medicine. So I just went into uh, my medicine residency. During my medicine residency, I actually ended up with an unexpected month blank rotation out of it because of a scheduling error. And I kind of hammered together an ACHD elective that I kind of created for myself. And that was my first real introduction to ACHD. I went on, I did some research in cell signaling and cardiac hypertrophy, and that kind of led eventually to an interest in, in developmental biology as well. So when I came to UCSF, I did a developmental biology fellowship after my cardiology fellowship, and then the rest was history. Well, welcome, Dr. Harris, and welcome, Tripti. That was a great introduction. And of course, it's always great to be with you, Josh. You know, today we will be talking about anomalous pulmonary venous return. And cardioneurons have come across this subject in episode 106, which was a case of sinus venosis defect and PAPVR. This phenomenal case was so eloquently presented by cardioneurons ambassadors, Dr. Alex and Danny Pipolis. But today, let's get back to the basis and build out a great understanding of what this entity is. So Tripti and Josh, I know that there are two terms that are similar and different. So we have partial anomalous pulmonary venous return, which is acronymed PAPVR, and we have partial anomalous pulmonary venous connection, PAPVC. So both have in common that there's a left to right shunt and can lead to right-sided heart issues. But Tripti, can you help us better understand these terminologies, PAPVR and PAPVC? Sure, Dan. So... Anatomically, a partial anomalous pulmonary venous return refers to anomalies in which one or more, but not all, of the pulmonary veins connects to a location other than the left atrium. Often, this means that the pulmonary veins will drain into a right atrium or a systemic vein such as the superior vena cava or the IVC. Physiologically, this produces a left-to-right shunt, allowing for already oxygenated blood to recirculate into the lungs and result in excessive pulmonary blood flow. If all pulmonary veins drain from both lungs into an anomalous site or in an abnormal fashion, then that is called a total anomalous pulmonary venous connection, or TAPVC. Patients with TAPVC often require surgical intervention urgently in childhood. Josh, could you perhaps give us an example for anomalous connection versus anomalous return? Sure. Tripti, I think you did a great job with the explanation. It really is a difference in anatomy and physiology. So PAPVC references an anatomic connection. So you may have a left pulmonary vein that comes into the coronary sinus. So it enters into the heart, but not in the right place. There are, however, connections that can be extracardiac. And this is where the term PAPVR comes in. It's broader and can include peripheral associations where pulmonary venous return drains into veins that also drain the systemic circulation. This could be like a left upper pulmonary vein to the systemic denominate vein, and that drainage comes down and eventually goes to the right atrium. As a disclaimer, we may use these terms interchangeably at times just for the purposes of understanding diagnostics, et cetera, et cetera. However, it's important to understand that these are actually very distinct entities. Dr. Harris, do you have any other thoughts? No, that's a very nice introduction. I guess I'm gratified to see somebody making that uh, distinction also between PAPVR and PAPVC. That's a, a distinction that I 
have kind of pedantically made over the years. I stopped doing it because I was afraid I was uh, alienating people with it. And I think probably comes from having, you know, read Perloff's book in my formative years. He goes into quite a bit of detail, kind of insisting on that. You know, from a practical standpoint, it is important, although somewhat limited, you know, mostly what he's talking about is when you have a sinuspinosis defect, for example, very often it's adjacent to the orifice of a normally connected pulmonary vein, right upper pulmonary vein, for example. And so you can have streaming of blood across the defect so that there's anomalous return without anomalous connection. In a lot of the ACHD cases that we see, we, we see different types of uh, abnormal drainage. I mean, for example, there may be a, a normal connection, but a persistent connection to a vertical vein. So there's dual drainage in some of the pulmonary venous system or in some of the heterotaxy cases, for example, polysplenia, left atrial isomerism, you can often have malposition of the primum septum so that the pulmonary veins, even if they're connected normally, are draining functionally into the right side. All of these things are obviously important to recognize if you're thinking about how to approach treatment. Thank you, Dr. Harris. That's a great point. So Tripti, as we were alluding to, like all things ACHD related, there are variants associated with each defect that can tremendously impact prognosis and management. So Dr. Harris already alluded to some of this, but what are some of the recognized variants that we should definitely know about? There are a couple of important ones. The most common variant is, like Dr. Harris mentioned, the right upper pulmonary veins or the right middle pulmonary veins emptying into the SVC anidiagous vein or the right atrium. This is often associated with the sinusvenosis atrial septal defect. Other variants include when the right pulmonary veins drain into the IVC. Usually this is via the single trunk connecting the IVC near the diaphragm. The left pulmonary veins connecting to an innominate vein via a vertical vein, and then the left pulmonary veins draining to the coronary sinus. 80% of anomalous connections are of the right sided pulmonary veins, and 20% affect the left side. Would you like to add any other thoughts on anatomic variants, Dr. Harris? Yeah, I, I would say you know, it's important to remember, I think, as a general rule, the right upper vein is the most commonly involved vein. I like to kind of think of all of these. Embryologically, I think you'll be getting into that. Very often what's happening is there's an abnormality of resorption of the primitive pulmonary veins as the dual circulation develops. And it becomes important very often when you see these anomalies to consider what they might say about additional uh, associated defects. I think we'll probably have a chance to talk about that later on. Thanks, Dr. Harris. Dan, do you know which one of these is scimitar syndrome? Uh, Tripti, thanks for putting me on the spot here. I'm going to go with right pulmonary veins to the IVC. You got it. Here's for it. So when the anomalous pulmonary veins drain from the right side to the IVC via common venous trunk, this is called scimitar syndrome. When you look at the descending trunk connecting the right venous return to the right atrium under x-ray or fluoroscopy, it looks like a crescent-shaped similar to a Turkish sword from the Ottoman Empire, hence looking like a scimitar and uh, scimitar syndrome. Dr. Harris, would you like to add any other thoughts on scimitar syndrome? Before Dr. Harris jumps in, I'm pretty uh, confident I'm learning that the C is silent for the first time, but that's great. I think it is, at least in my head it is. It is silent. I guess they could have called it the Mameluke syndrome, but that's something else. Yeah. So I, I guess scimitar is one of those, maybe an example of what I was talking about, where very often the issue isn't just the right-sided overload from the left to right shun, 
but the associated defects are very often, for example, particularly if the venous drainage is subdiaphragmatic, the vein becomes obstructed, the right lung is often hypoplastic, and there's very frequently anomalies of the bronchial system in the right lung. That's a frequently misunderstood concept. We, we talk about sequestration of the lung, and I guess I always, what I was starting out, I always just assumed that had to do blandly with obstruction of the pulmonary vein so that there was pulmonary venous hypertension in that segment. But really what's the definition would be a segment with an arterial supply that comes from the bronchial segment and then a venous drainage that is into a, into a normal pulmonary vein. And so these patients very often present not with the direct consequences of pulmonary overcirculation, but rather with the consequences of left lung hypoplasia, recurrent pulmonary infections in the sequestered segments, for example, and pulmonary venous hypertension in those segments. So it's, I, I think, just an example of how the details end up mattering with regard to knowing what to look for in associated defects. Thank you so much, Dr. Harris. I am a lot like you, I think, and then I think about a lot of these entities embryologically. And so, you know, in the pulmonary veins, I think, particularly in adult cardiology, we do not consider embryologic pathways or even, you know, a substantial number of structures that are outside of the heart itself. And more and more, I've learned about how pulmonary veins develop and they bring up shunts from different places with different considerations, both with sort of the amount of shunt that you might have, the association of different types of defects and sort of the ideas of the vertical vein and, and that type of idea that, you know, we can probably talk a little bit more about later. But Thank you very much for those thoughts. I, I think it really helps create a construct in people's minds. So Tripti, like we've been saying, pulmonary venous return that is anomalous can come sort of as one piece of a package in that, you know, we talked about scimitar. Are there other sorts of associated congenital anomalies that we need to be thinking about when we're talking about PAPVR? Yeah, for sure. So as you can expect, patients with scimitar syndrome have the hypoplastic right lung or a hypoplastic right pulmonary artery. Other associated lesions would include a secundum ASD, which is present in less than 10% of patients, or more rarely ventricular septal defects, patent ductus arteriosus, coarts, and tetralogy of fallot. Otherwise, as Josh was alluding to earlier, a diagnosis of one congenital anomaly should certainly prompt the presence of other defects and shunts, not only inside the cardiothoracic box, but also outside. So for example, 42% of patients with PAPVC have sinus venosis type of atrial septal defects. They can also be associated with heterotaxy syndrome, where abdominal organs such as liver, stomach, and intestines may be contralateral to their expected position, and the pulmonary veins actually lie in their normal position but are connected such that they drain into the right atrium. Typically, this anatomy is also associated with an atrial septal defect allowing for blood flow from the right atrium to the left atrium. A persistent left SVC or an interrupted IVC with azygous continuous. Make sure to count the spleens. Patients may have asplenia or bilateral right-sidedness or polysplenia with bilateral left-sidedness, depending on whether there is a left-to-right isomerism. Tripti, thanks so much for going over these associated anomalies. And, you know, as Josh and Dr. Harris pointed out earlier, embryology is so key to understanding how our patients clinically present. So for me, honestly, I have to admit, it's been a long time since I got embryologically nerdy. 
Could you please walk me through the embryology of partial anomalous pulmonary venous return or total anomalous pulmonary venous return? I'll give it a shot. So we know for a fact that pulmonary veins originate from the posterior aspect of the left atrium. Meanwhile, the lung buds that arise from the lung parenchyma canalize as a vessel and gradually connect to the developed pulmonary veins. Some theories say that the lung buds are initially enmeshed in the splanchnic plexus, which drains into the cardinal and umbilical vitelline veins, systemic venous system. By four weeks of gestation, the pulmonary veins from the left atrium connect with the superior portion of the splanchnic plexus to form the pulmonary plexus and ultimately loses its connection with the splanchnic plexus. The pulmonary veins are then supposed to divide into four branches, two on the right and two on the left, each with an orifice at the left atrium. Failure of one or more of the pulmonary veins to separate from the systemic venous system results in PAPVC or TAPVC. Dr. Harris, would you like to add any other thoughts on associated embryology? Sure. To be very fair, the details of this are not totally understood. Yeah, the lungs butt out from the ventral foregut, so they're endoderm derivatives. They probably induce mesodermal precursors to cause this venous plexus to form around them. We do know that that origin of the venous plexus creates the vessels to which this outpouching from the back of the sinus venosus attaches and creates the continuity of the pulmonary venous system. How it gets incorporated into the pulmonary arterial circulation so that the two circulations are separated is not totally clear, at least not to me. And I guess one kind of fun thing to think about is I mentioned heterotaxy earlier on in my introduction, and you mentioned it again here. And I think the basic way that we think about heterotaxy is that it is the result of a fundamental right-left patterning defect, which is a very early embryologic abnormality, right? One of the very first things that happens is when the embryo is still in its flat disc stage, the node will produce a substance that allows asymmetry from right to left to be established. And the basic idea with the heterotaxy syndromes is a scrambling of those right to left spatial orientation patterns. When we see PAPVR associated with the heterotaxy defects, it's, I think, implies that the heart cells are responding to scrambled spatial cues from outside the heart too. Again, kind of murky business, but I think it does kind of reinforce what Josh was saying about using a basic understanding of embryology to guide your understanding of these defects and vice versa, you know, seeing these defects and allowing you to kind of speculate on the developmental abnormality. Yeah, and I agree with a lot of what's said. You know, the story that I always think about with anomalous pulmonary venous return is a story of trophism. So like, I think it's maybe easy for the listener to envision that there is a primitive pulmonary vein that exists within the primitive left atrium. And that provides a sort of signaling or some level of uh, sort of trophism for what are extracardiac pulmonary vasculature that's meant to return to the left atrium. But if there's an issue with this initial pulmonary vein that is, you know, part of the left atrium, things get lost. The pulmonary venous return may go up, it may go down. And that's kind of how we get these ideas like vertical veins. So like your pulmonary venous return gets lost and it goes up to the anomenator to the SVC or it gets lost and it goes down. 
It typically does not go to the IVC itself for whatever reason, but it can go to some of your splanchnic venous vasculature. And then the other thing that is also fairly rare, but I also think is kind of an interesting sort of bridge over in maybe a milder form of PAPVR is that embryologically core triatriatum dexter, which is essentially like a funnel of your you know pulmonary venous return coming into the remainder of the left atrium. That's something that is sort of on this spectrum embryologically with issues with the primitive pulmonary vein, which is a very interesting entity. It is distinct from core triatriatum dexter, which is my understanding is sort of larger valve on the right side and you typically see. You know, anything else aside from that, Dr. Harris? Well, you meant to say core triatriatum sinister initially, but yeah, I was thinking the same thing. And that to me, that's almost the archetypal basic defect in the joining up of the rear of the sinus spinosus to the splanchnic bed that surrounds the lung buds, right? When that connection is made and doesn't remodel itself properly, I think that is the basis of Cortreatriatum sinister. Dexter, I don't know. I actually think Cortreatriatum dexter it is a separate thing. And yeah, as you say, but obviously outside of the role of this discussion. So Dr. Harris and Josh, this was really valuable in terms of understanding how these things develop and kind of giving your kind of like two cents and discussions about how embryologically we end up having these anomalies is very helpful. So how might partial anomalous pulmonary venous connection or PAPVC present? Because that's really what we want to know, especially if we don't want to miss these patients. So how commonly would we expect to see this in our clinics? That would definitely give us an understanding of how hard we should be looking for these things. So Dan, most patients with PAPVC are diagnosed incidentally on CT of chest or during a left heart cath or coronary intervention. And the true prevalence of this anomaly is unknown. It's estimated to exist in about 0.7% of adults by autopsy reports, but this is likely an underestimated number. Females may be more affected than males in adult studies. And I think it's about time we let the rubber meet the road and get to clinic. So I have a patient to uh, discuss here, if that's okay with everybody. Mr. H.E.U. is a 64-year-old male with well-controlled hypertension who presents with progressive dyspnea and bilateral lower extremity swelling for four weeks. He presented to the ER where he was noted to be afebrile with a blood pressure of 150 over 80, a heart rate of 78 beats per minute, and he was setting 92% in room air. His physical exam was notable for a male in mild distress. He had elevated JVP with the patojugular reflux, and he had a systolic ejection murmur heard best at the left lower sternal border. His transthoracic echocardiogram showed normal left ventricular function, but right ventricular dilation and low normal right ventricular function with severe TR and a PASP, which was measured at 50 millimeters mercury. The right heart catheterization, which was performed after these findings, showed pulmonary hypertension with an RA pressure noted at 19, an RV pressure of 87 over 23, a PA pressure of 88 over 45 with a mean of 59, a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure with a mean of 18. His QP to QS on this catheterization was read as 1.3 to 1. He had a cardiac CT scan done, which showed anomalous drainage of his left lower pulmonary vein to his coronary sinus. Tripti, is this typical of a presentation with PAPVC? What can the clinical spectrum of PAPVC and TAPVC include? So, as we mentioned earlier, most patients with PAPVC are diagnosed incidentally on imaging or CAT for another reason. So, they're asymptomatic for a majority of their life. When they do present, they can 
present with exertional dyspnea and or heart failure. You see, patients with PAPVC can develop progressive right-sided volume overload, right-sided ventricular enlargement, progressive increase in pulmonary arterial pressures, and eventually RV dysfunction. The rate at which this happens is variable on the size of the shunt, on the number of pulmonary veins involved, their sites of connection, and compliance of the pulmonary vascular bed and associated lesions. So in patients with PAPVC, other associated septal defects, such as a left to right shunt and a potential for progressive right to left shunt down the line can result in presentation with Eisenmenger syndrome. Dr. Harris, would you like to add anything else on the clinical spectrum of how these patients may present? Sure. So I think it's always good if you're seeing a patient who has unexpected RV enlargement to remember to consider this diagnosis because it's easy to miss and you have to go looking for it. As a general rule, and there's an old clinical pearl or clinical rule, there's an eponym associated with it, and this is cardio nerds. <laughs> I can never remember the name of the eponym, and it's probably good. The rule is that at least half of the pulmonary venous return has to be abnormal in order to see RV dilatations, a clinically significant shunt or a QB to QS greater than about 1.5 before you see a clinically important RV dilatation, which is to say that one pulmonary vein draining anomalously is not enough to do it. Like most clinical rules, that's just not correct. I mean, we see a number of patients who clearly just have one vein, but also clearly have hemodynamically significant left to right shunts. Probably has to do with the fact that you probably all remember reading about shunt vascularity, right? In normal circumstances, the pulmonary blood flow is predominantly to the lower zones, but in, when you have shunt physiology, the pulmonary blood flow is redistributed upward. And uh, very often, as we talked about, it's the upper lobe veins that draining anomalously, right upper particularly, and it can magnify the degree of flow into that one segment. The other thing that's important to remember, and I want to come back to this, I guess, on this case, because we don't know what the anatomy is yet, but if you think about the anomalous segment, right? You've got pulmonary blood flow coming from a PA going through a capillary bed and then draining into a pulmonary vein. The anomalous segment is that vein is connected to the right atrium. So it'll have a pressure the same as the right atrium. A normally draining segment will drain to the left atrium and will have a pressure the same as the left atrium. Under normal circumstances, the left-sided pressures and the impedance to flow on the left side is greater than the impedance to flow on the right side. And that's what causes pre-tricuspid shunt, whether it's an ASD or, or PAPVR, right, is the difference in impedance in venous outflow in the anomalous segment relative to the normally draining segments. So again, that difference in impedance in venous outflow will also magnify flow in the anomalous segment. So a bunch of random collection of, of thoughts about that. I think we'll get into that in a moment though. Thanks so much for that. You know, I think that talking about these types of things kind of prompt considerations that we keep in mind when we're looking at cardiac catheterizations in the ACHD world. Not every pulmonary vein is the same and where it comes back. And there are definitely plenty of cardiac catheterizations where I see multiple wedge pressures in the right and the left. So thank you very much, Dr. Harris, for kind of walking us through a lot of those types of ideas. Tripti. Can you walk us through what findings would trigger your suspicion for PAPVC and what diagnostic strategies you would use to further evaluate these situations? Sure, Josh. So exam findings may include a prominent RV impulse and ejection systolic murmur at the left upper sternal border 
a mid-diastolic rumble, and a widely split S2 variable with respiration. On EKG, a right bundle branch morphology, a right axis deviation, or first-degree heart block is associated with RB volume enlargement. On echo, RV enlargement without left heart dysfunction should raise suspicion for anomalous pulmonary venous connection. Other hints can include the presence of a sinus venosus ASD, a secundum ASD, or RV enlargement that's significantly large for a small ASD or PFO. While left-sided pulmonary veins can be visualized on the suprasternal view of a transthoracic echo, right-sided veins are more challenging on a TTE. A transesophageal echocardiogram can instead be used to identify the site and drainage of the pulmonary veins. A right heart cap is useful to identify the etiology of pulmonary hypertension, to quantify flows in pulmonary and systemic system, and the presence of a shunt. It is not able to identify the exact anatomy. Selective angiography of the right and left pulmonary arteries can confirm the presence and course of pulmonary veins on levophase. A CTA or CMR is super helpful and is recommended for definitive diagnosis. A CTA can offer spatial resolution that a CMR cannot, but at a cost of radiation and kidney insult. A CMR offers high resolution for defining vascular anatomy, can quantify chamber dimensions, estimate shunt burden, and degree of stenosis using flow quantification techniques. In addition, respiratory-gated 3D whole-heart imaging, or MRA, can be used for multiplanar reconstruction and aid in perioperative planning. Dr. Harris, would you have any thoughts on other diagnostic findings we might see? Sure. I think it's worthwhile to think about the cath a little bit more, both in terms of how to interpret the data, but particularly for those of you who are cardiology fellows, how to think about getting the data and doing the cath appropriately so that you don't miss the diagnosis. Because unfortunately, I, I have seen it missed a couple of times, even in the cath lab. So if you go back to his cath, his RA pressure was, let's say, 20 RV pressure was 87 over 20, PA pressure 88 over 45, and pulmonary capillary wedge pressure was 20. So there are a couple of things that jump out at me. One is, well, first of all, his QP to QS was 1.3. And the question is, if you're in the cath lab, how do you get the QP to QS in a patient like this? How would you approach getting samples to make sure you're identifying a shunt? If you do a right heart cath the way I'll admit I was trained to do it as an adult cardiology fellow. You just kind of whip through, get an SPC sat, an IVC sat, RA, RVPA, maybe a wedge sat. If we're feeling adventuresome and then, uh, and, and then a, a femoral arterial sat, and then you just kind of go from there. The problem is that depending on where, let's just assume there's a right upper pulmonary vein that's draining into the SPC somewhere, right? Unless you get your catheter up above the connection, you're not going to get a true SVC set. You're going to get the mixed blood from the SVC and the anomalous vein, which will be 100% saturated, presumably, if the lungs are normal. So you're going to miss the step up. But one tip-off would be, you know, normally the IVC blood has a higher set than the SVC blood because of the real vein return. In patients like this, sometimes you'll see this conspicuous high set in the SVC that results from the mixture of the pulmonary vein and the SVC blood, right? If you see that, you should back up and, and just don't complete the cath until you've sorted that out, right? That's a clue. 
get the catheter way up above uh, the connection and see if there's actually a step up within the SBC somewhere, right? And they use that to calculate your systemic venous sat using a flam equation, right? If you really want to be complete and it's not that big a deal, it's easier if you're coming from the femoral vein, right? If you're coming from the groin, see if you can just get the catheter to follow its way up into the anomalous vein. You can make the diagnosis that way and then get a sat from that vein and show that it's hundred you know, percent or 95%, right? So make sure that you're getting good systemic venous sats and you're not missing the step up, right? The next thing is, so that's how you get the samples to put into the QPQS. The other thing that is suspicious about these hemodynamics that you described is that the RO pressure is the same as the wedge pressure, right? So why would the RO pressure be the same as the wedge pressure? Because on face value, what you're describing is post-capillary pulmonary hypertension. He's got pulmonary venous hypertension and his PA pressure is high because he's in left heart failure. Well, you wouldn't give somebody with left heart failure sildenafil, right? And cause the wedge pressure to go up further, right? So this is a common thing that we see. And remember that in my comments about shunt vascularity and impedance in the venous system, if you use a balloon tip catheter that's flow directed, the catheter is going to tend to go wherever the flow is going. And in somebody with PAPVR, there's probably a better than even chance that it's going to float into the anomalous segment. Right. In this case, let's say hypothetically it's the right upper lobe. If you then get a wedge pressure in the right upper lobe, you're going to be measuring the venous pressure downstream of that capillary bed, which is connected to the right atrium. So you're going to recapitulate your right atrial measurement in your wedge measurement. And you're going to miss the fact that there's actually a marked difference. Does that make sense? So I think it's important just to kind of make sure when you're in the cath lab that you're not getting rushed through it and you're really thinking through the potential physiology. So you really make the most of that exercise. Well, Dr. Harris, this is like absolutely fantastic and worth reiterating. So you raised two points, one about your shunt measurements and where you're getting your samples. And two, that your wedge may actually not be your wedge if you're in the vein that actually returns to the right side of the heart then indeed you're actually not getting your wedge. You're actually getting the right-sided pressures again. It is the wedge pressure, but we take it for granted that the wedge pressure reflects left atrial pressure. Well, it just reflects wherever the vein is drained. <laughs> right, right. right. It drains in the left atrium, but in this case, it may drain in the right atrium. So don't take that for granted. I think that's a good general rule in congenital catheterization is don't take anything for granted. Make sure that you understand the numbers that you're getting, that they make sense. And if you don't on the spot have a good explanation for what you're getting, pause, think through and make sure you don't have to take some, some other measurements. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Harris. I think that, you know, the way that an ACHD cath goes is definitely, I'm learning more and more, not the same as sort of what you typically do with radar catheterization and hemodynamics. There's just, you know, go in preparing to be surprised. And I think you will end up more successful, just kind of like you said. And there's a lot there in the cath world with pulmonary veins. I, I've learned a lot sort of working in the pediatric lab about issues. Now that we've, you know, had a number of successful surgeries and interventions for issues with pulmonary veins, pulmonary veins have turned out to be very sensitive. And we've developed techniques to try and minimize the number of sutures that we put through there because they're vulnerable to stenosis. They require stenting and intervention and re-intervention. 
There's even some data talking about tacrolimus and sort of immunosuppression to try and minimize intimal thickening in the pulmonary venous vasculature. So it's a whole new world for those in the intervention-bound pathway that have interest in ACHD. Definitely an important piece. But anyway, coming back to our patient, Mr. HEW, given his QPDQA was measured at less than 1.5, he was started on Tadalafil and his symptoms improved. He underwent a repeat right heart catheterization six months later and showed a decrease in his mean PA pressure. It continues to be monitored closely because appropriately so, the providers that are taking care of him are concerned that he may have a change in the amount of shunting that he sees, which could become hemodynamically significant. He may develop heart failure symptoms, arrhythmias or other complications of pulmonary hypotension. So like much of what we've seen in this ACHD series, the story doesn't stop at diagnosis. We have to follow these patients along, repeat testing, and make sure that we are taking the best care of them that we can on an ongoing basis. Now, let's say, Tripti, that you know the QPDQS is greater than 1.5 on its catheterization. Sounds like we may need to be talking about something more serious than just medications. What do you think? Yeah, I agree, Josh. And some of the indications that we would think about for intervention when the QPQS is greater than 1.5 is to assess, are they having any symptoms of uh, functional impairment? Are they having any dyspnea or heart failure symptoms? Do they have RV enlargement? And we must ensure that they, their pulmonary arterial systolic pressures are less than 50% systemic pressures and that their PVR is less than one-third SVR before we considering trying to repair it. Certainly. Repair of a PAPAC is recommended if patients are undergoing surgery for another reason. For asymptomatic patients with hemodynamically significant shunts, repair is considered a class 2A recommendation based on the 2018 guidelines. Dr. Harris, would you have any other thoughts on intervention? Uh, yeah, no, I agree with all of that. There's some interesting you know, new techniques. I and mean, we've done a number of these repairs in the cath lab, actually using covered stents between the ASD and the anomalous vein. And that's, you know, something that might be applicable to a select group of people with the right type of anatomy who might not otherwise be good surgical candidates. And I think you touched on an important point about, you know, in somebody who is initially being treated with pulmonary vasodilators, and I, I comment on this a little bit, you know, one of the downsides is that you might increase the shun, which could cause further volume load, but also you can increase the volume load on the left atrium and increase the wedge pressure if there's a problem with the left ventricle either the compliance or systolic function. So uh, I think you're very right to point out that that is something you want to watch very carefully if you're kind of pursuing a potential treat to close strategy. And for those of you who are listening with great interest about the cath lab interventions in these types of contexts with appropriate anatomy, you look forward to the intervention and ACHD episode that we have coming up. We have a case of that, and that's one of the latest things that uh, has developed in the cath lab for ACHD. Uh, thanks, Josh, for bringing that up. And, you know, so we've got the transcatheter interventions that we'll be talking about. But Tripti, you know, Josh mentioned that, you know, veins are a little bit more challenging to intervene on than arteries because of the nature of their uh, vascular wall makeup. How involved is surgery to reroute pulmonary venous return? And are we talking about a high risk proposition trying to repair these? So, yes, uh, surgical repair options are kind of tailored to an individual's anatomy and include 
routing of the blood from the SVC or IVC to the left atrium either directly or through a baffle, also known as a warden procedure. In a warden procedure, the SVC is cut above the level of the entrance of most superior anomalous pulmonary vein. The cardiac side of the SVC is then sewn shut and the cranial side of the SVC is attached to the right atrial appendage. A patch is then used to baffle the anomalous pulmonary vein through the atrial septum into the left atrium, closing the ASD. Dr. Harris, what are your thoughts about the wooden procedure? I'm in favor of it. No, I think that's a nice description. It depends on, as you say, the individual anatomy. Again, most of what we're talking about here is when there is a connection of usually a right upper vein to the SVC or the RA to SVC junction. Uh, the critical issue is kind of where the connection actually is. In cases where there's a direct connection to the RA or at the RA SVC junction, very often you can just create a baffle from the orifice down to the ASD. In cases where the connection is high up in the SVC, you can imagine that carrying a baffle all the way through could cause them some SVC obstruction. And that's usually where the warden procedure uh, comes into play. Thanks so much. And thanks everybody for a wonderful discussion. Thanks for all the great information on what is one of the most occult types of congenital heart disease and definitely is important to our adult audiences. They may encounter more and more patients who have anomalous pulmonary venous return. Dr. Harris, now we ask a question of all of our series experts, and that is what makes your heart flutter about adult congenital heart disease? I, you know, I, I think it's really the fact that every case is unique. I mean, I, I know I, I hear interventionalists say that about the coronary artery anatomy and electrophysiologists say that about atrial fibrillation, but I, that personally doesn't quite resonate in the same way to me. For me, each of these patients has really really unique uh, anatomic or physiologic characteristics. And pretty much every day in clinic, I'm seeing something I've never seen before, even though I see a lot of it all the time as part of my regular career. And that's, that's enough to keep me coming back. And also, and you and I, you know, we're kind of, we're talking about geeking out over embryologic or developmental biology, uh, um, Carlitz. And to me, I think we're still in the infancy of understanding cardiac development, you know, and most cardiac development has been paid attention to by pediatric cardiologists rather than adult congenital cardiologists. But I think we're finally at a point in our, the maturity of our understanding of developmental cardiology, where we can start making connections to clinical phenomena that we see in older patients. Trying to understand, for example, the later manifestations, late sequelae of defects and linking them back potentially to like cell autonomous defects that are associated with the original uh, abnormality. So to me, it's, it's an intellectually um, exciting time to be involved in the field. Thank you so much, Dr. Harris. That was quite profound. And you know, the, the thing we keep seeing with our ACHD series is that there's nothing routine about ACHD patients and everybody is, all these patients are unique in so many ways. And, you know, we went with cardio nerds, but we could have easily gone with cardio geeks. So duly noted. I've already trademarked that. <laughs> smart move, smart move. Speaking of cardio nerds, AKA cardio geeks, Tripti, what are your career plans going forward? Uh, so, well, I'll be pursuing an ACHD fellowship at Vanderbilt Medical Center and look forward to studying advanced heart failure in this population. Um, just contributing more to the knowledge pool of more research, so much more to learn. Thank you, Cardio Nerds, for providing me with this stimulating and informational session, for sharing information, for inviting us to the show. It's been fantastic.
So thanks so much, Tripti. This was fantastic. I really appreciate spending the afternoon with you guys just talking about congenital heart disease. It's one of my favorite things to do. You know, we thank our listeners for listening and please stay tuned as we go through ACHD lesion by lesion and field by field. And if anybody's out there interested, you know, ACHD is a growing field and we need plenty of trainees to go in. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Dr. Harris. And thanks, Tripti. Thank you.